This is the word of the Lord from Psalm 102. Hear my prayer, O Lord, let me cry, let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. For my days pass away like smoke and my bones burn like a furnace. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. Good morning, church family. Good to be with you here today. Uh, If you don't know me, my name is John Fox. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, it's been a little bit since I preached because now we have Reese, Pastor Reese. And I'm so happy. (laughs) So happy. But I do get to uh, preach for you this morning and... Um, if you don't know, and you're new with us, we have been in a sermon series entitled Draw Near, in which we are taking uh, a number of Christian spiritual disciplines, practices out of the Psalms. There's so many more that we could talk about, but this one is, um, today is going to be focusing on responding to God. And that's important because last week, the focus was on meditation. What has God said? Today, we're going to focus on responding to what God has said in prayer. And that may be a different approach for you, maybe a different thought about prayer. We have uh, so many different ways of thinking about prayer prayers of supplication, uh, prayers of thanksgiving. But today's prayer that we will see is in Psalm 102 a prayer of lament or penitence. And uh, before we get going here, I just invite that you would pray with me, that God would teach us his word, and we would be uh, open and receptive to what he has to say to us this morning. Let's pray. Lord, as we read this psalm, God, I ask that we would really resonate with it, that you would help us to uh, not just understand what the text is saying, understand what the psalmist is saying, but we would actually even feel it as well. And we would be able to also engage with you and uh, have you in the midst of how we deal with grief or disappointment. And we pray in your son's name for his glory. Amen. So this morning, as we look at Psalm 102, I want to share just a couple things with you, kind of caveats. Um, One is that this psalm is a psalm. And as Pastor Reese and I were talking about what psalm to preach on when it comes to prayer, the answer is any psalm. Any psalm will do. Because all the psalms are prayers. All the psalms are songs of God's people singing and praising God and talking to God about anything and everything that happens in their lives. And so there are a variety of different ways to pray that the Psalms teach us. We have, um, we have uh, you know, I mentioned uh, lament, but there's thanksgiving. We have a slide that kind of helps us with this uh, from Holman uh, Bible Dictionary. When you think about all the different ways to pray that are modeled in the Psalms, we have trust. We, there's imprecatory. We don't talk about that a whole lot. That's calling down fire on your enemies. Um, I don't think we've done that on Sunday morning yet, but, um, you know, it's in the Psalms. Uh, then we have praise. There's other kind of kinds put in there. There's Thanksgiving, wisdom, royal prophetic. There's all these Psalms. Uh, 
All these different ways of praying. But you see, the one that is the biggest that takes up just over one-third of the Psalms is on lament. I think that's really instructive for us because as far as God goes, I think he understands the normal human condition is one of disappointment. It's one of sadness. It's one of lament. Now, I don't want to be too down this morning, but the Psalms are the place where we can go to to say, how do God's people engage with God, the world around them, and themselves in an honest way? How do they do that? And this psalm is one of those one-third psalms that teaches us how to pray and how to engage with God and how to engage with ourselves. And so today, the main point that I'm driving at is this, that prayer gives God's people a heavenly perspective. When life is not as you want it, it's going to happen. Maybe it hasn't happened yet, okay? You keep, you keep growing, keep good and old enough, and then it's going to hit. And there's going to be a day, or many days, where you, sit, you wake up and you say, this is not what I wanted. This is not what I expected. This is the kind of psalm to deal with those feelings. And what we see that we need and you can ultimately get is a heavenly perspective on it, not just your little perspective. Important, but there's a heavenly one. And so this psalm teaches us uh, three things. Teaches us how to be gut-level honest. Teaches us how to move on with life. Something hard to do. And it teaches us how to deal with the waves of grief that come. So those are the th- three things that we're going to be looking at as we break up this psalm here. How to be gut-level honest, how to move on with your life, and how to deal with the waves of grief. First, we read, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. As the psalmist begins this prayer, he will begin with a very important word. The psalmist does not begin with, O general deity in the heavens. He does not begin with, big guy upstairs. He begins with, O Lord. And this is actually the personal name for God, Yahweh, in the Old Testament. And so when we think about how to be gut-level honest, this, this psalm will make you uncomfortable. <laughs> it makes me uncomfortable. And the first thing that the psalmist does is he says, you want to be gut-level honest with God? Let me show you how. You engage with him as he is, the covenantal God, the covenant-keeping God. That is crucial for us as we look at the psalm because he's not just using Elohim, the general term for God, gods out there, powerful beings, divine beings. He's saying, this, the one I know, the one who knows me, hear my prayer, O Lord, Yahweh. He begins talking with God about what's going on in his life in a very personal way. There is, there is some purchase here. Isn't there? There's some degree of expectation. I can talk to you because you know me. I can tell you these things because I know you. And so that's the first thing with being gut level honest is you got to know the real God. Or at least you have to know what his name is. You have to know what he's like. So that's what the psalmist does. 
He deals with God as he actually is. But pretty quickly, he moves on from that. Then in verse 3, to do something else. He really just, after saying a, a brief couple verses on, God, hear my cry, I'm in distress, he will begin to list out how he feels about where he's at in life and the things that are happening to him. Verse 3, he says, For my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart struck down like grass and is withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I am like a desert owl of the wilderness. Think of a vulture. Like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I am like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. All the day, my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. Why? For I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. This is a rough situation. Now, we don't know exactly what's going on in the psalmist's life and you know, so, many, so many questions we don't have answered. But what we do know is that he does not begin after his immediate distress call to the covenant-keeping God, he does not begin with, God, let me give you an unbiased perspective on all the points that are happening to me right now. He doesn't say, let me step back and be objective about my situation. It's totally the opposite. And this makes us uncomfortable. I think it makes humans uncomfortable across history. He, he steps in and he says, let me tell you about the way I feel. Let me just bear my soul to you. Let me open up and tell you what it's like for me. This is not an easy thing to do for probably anybody, but it's certainly what the psalmist models for us, is he begins to say, let me just bear my soul before you. So the psalmist, he shows us, you got to know the covenant-keeping God, but he also says, you got to tell him what's going on. Don't be fake. Don't be fake. This is, this is very difficult for us. I feel like um, at our current time in history, current time in the nation, where so much of our society, so much of our life is focused on superficial things. You think about Instagram culture, social media. Everything that we put out there is not really the whole picture, is it? It's not the whole self. It's the best parts of us. It's the best pictures. Edit. I don't edit pictures because I don't take pictures. But we all do. Even if it's, not, if it's not social media, we do this with each other. And some of this isn't bad. Okay, I know it bothers some of you when you come in here and you say, how are you doing? And you say, well, now I'm in an existential crisis. Do, how do I answer this? Do I tell you all the things that are going wrong in my life? You know? Um, there's, there's some room for just, you know, brief check-ins, but uh, this is not the space for that. This is not where that should happen. The psalmist comes, he says, let me give it all to you. Let me bring my whole self before you, God. Not the edited version of myself. And there's a really dramatic upshot for churches here, I feel like. This is probably the most genuine church I've ever been a part of. So I think it's an it's, it's, uh, area of strength for us. But 
in a lot of churches across America, I feel like are just filled with fake prayers. Fake prayers. And I don't want to deride or minimize other churches or people. I don't have anybody in particular in mind. But this is just a normal part of our culture and how we can operate, where all of a sudden, when we come to God, we don't acknowledge difficulties. We don't acknowledge our feelings. We don't acknowledge what's really happening. And what that does is it creates a church, it creates a culture in which when we ask each other, not God now, we're just asking each other questions. And we feel like we have to respond in such a way where we say, well, I'm fine. God wants more than that. And like I said, you have to use some wisdom, right? Not every conversation is the one to bear your soul on. But what we need to recognize with the psalmist is our God is a God that we can come and bring our whole self to, unedited. And that will end up creating somebody who's more genuine, it creates a people who are more genuine, a church who's more genuine. It's a different way of living. And so if you want to be gut level honest, you certainly need to know God as the covenant keeping God, um, at least have some idea of him. You need to also be able to engage with your own emotions and tell them what's going on. That's really the only way you can tell them what's going on inside is if you start to open this up, you start to think about it, you start to talk about it. Journaling is probably the most helpful spiritual practice in this regard. You take whatever's boiling on in the inside and then you start to put it down on paper and you say, wow, I didn't know I felt that way. I'm really angry right now. Now, some of you may be far more in tune with your emotions and you can do that pretty easily. Uh, For others of us, like myself, it may take a couple months, you know? (laughs) I'm joking, kind of. Uh, I was reading through some journals recently. I was like, wow, that took me a long time to realize. Um, But it's a way for you to be able to put down on paper to say, what's actually going on in the inside of me? And another way to be uh, really a, a... integral step with being gut level honest is this will lead you somewhere. When you start to do this, when you start to really be honest, it will lead you to deal with God and his sovereignty. This is the third, third thing, to engage with God's sovereignty. Look at verse 10. So the psalmist is talking about his troubles and what's going on inside of him and his life. And then he says, because this is happening because of your indignation and anger. For you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. Psalmist has no problem taking where he is at in life, disappointment, difficulty, grief, and then turning it to God to say, you're involved in this. Now, We need to be careful here because we don't know exactly what's happening, right? Could be the psalmist sinned greatly and he's experiencing the repercussions of that, natural consequences of some bad choices. It could be that the psalmist is suffering irrespective of other things happening. Could be like Job. You read the book of Job and you find out at the end of it, he suffers, he's restored, 
You see the divine courtroom at the beginning of the book? Job never sees any of that. He never gets an explanation. On this side of life, anyway. But what he did, and what we have to do, really, if you want to grow in your spiritual health, is to be able to take your disappointment, your difficulty, your grief, and then turn it to God. We have to be careful here because we don't ascribe God with evil. The psalmist doesn't do that. But he is very clearly saying, my situation that I'm in is somehow related to you, God. And this brings up the idea of God's sovereignty. And probably no pastor or author has spoken more and preached more about God's sovereignty than John Piper. And just as a brief excursus, uh, here's his definition of God's sovereignty. That God is powerful and authoritative to the extent of being able to override all other powers and authorities. And when you start to open the lid on this and think, wait a second. If God's all-powerful, then he could have stopped this from happening. If God has all power and authority, then things could be different. And if things could be different, what does that say about God and his trustworthiness and his faithfulness and his love for me? The psalmist, I don't think, ascribes evil to God, but he does somehow say, you're, you're related to all this. And that is something that we should do as well. Like I said, you got to be careful when you're doing this not to immediately jump the gun and say, God, you're evil because of this that happened to me. That's not what the psalmist does. But there's some level of engagement that I'm saying we need to grow in. We need to be able to be comfortable in. And this is what I'm really starting to talk about when I say this psalm will make you uncomfortable. When the psalmist is talking to God, he talks about himself, cries for help, and he says, God, you somehow have had a role in this. Why? I don't understand why. That's a very uncomfortable thing to do. It leads you to all kinds of questions, questions that are too big for you, questions that you'll never have answered in your lifetime. Certainly questions I'm sure the psalmist didn't have answered. But this is being gut-level honest with God. And let me just tell you today, as you hear this, maybe it stirs stuff up for you. God can handle it. He can totally handle it. He can handle your angst. He can handle your stress. He can handle your fears. He can handle your aggression. He's God. He can handle it. And the psalmist knows this, so he just dumps it all out on the table. He got level honest, and we need to be the same way. In 2014, towards the end of 2014, November, I got up for work one morning, and I was working in a machine shop, going to seminary. Seminary was not machine shop, but that's what I was doing. Um, and I fell over. And I thought, that was weird. So I got up, and I tried to walk again, and I fell over again. And I don't learn too quick, so I did it a few more times. <laughs> and uh, by the time I just pretty much made it out of the uh, bedroom, I was in the hallway, and I thought, this is not good. I need to do a ser- serious diagnostic on myself. Uh, 
I can move my hands, toes, fingers. Okay, good. Um, I couldn't walk. I kept getting really dizzy and I would fall over. And that began for me a serious um, time of investigation to my health. And a few weeks later, turns out uh, I was diagnosed with viral meningitis. And once I was diagnosed, I was admitted to the hospital immediately. And then, you know, everything goes on pause and you have to figure out what to do in life. And so the first thing was, okay, sit in the hospital bed. So run some tests. And the next day, the uh, infectious disease doctor came in, very healthy looking guy, played basketball, talked about how good he was at basketball. (laughs) Must be nice. Um, And uh, he said, it's really good that you came in yesterday because if you didn't, you would have been dead today. Uh, Everything stops. When those kind of things happen, it brings up so many questions. And it certainly did for me. And it it began uh, a series of events that would take years to overcome. Uh, I was put on bed rest for three months. I had to quit my job. We had moved from Louisville back to Houston and move in with the parents. Nobody ever wants to do that. Um, but that's what we had to do. It was a beginning kind of a turn of pretty dark time thinking through what in the world do I do with my life? And am I ever going to get better? And what do I do for work now? And most of all, probably chief of all, of all the questions, Lord, why? I think there's some answers I could get. Uh, you know, work full-time, school full-time, church part-time was too much. So working myself into illness was part of it, but there's also other things. I don't know what all those answers are. I've probably gotten a few answers over the years, But going through that kind of thing stirred up within me all kinds of questions about God's sovereignty and and me and what he's doing. And it's a natural progression. When you start to deal with your inner emotions and difficulties in your life, that it should lead you as a believer to God to say, why? What's going on? To where you can be honest. One of the key things for me, I think, during that time was I couldn't, I couldn't fake it. I couldn't fake it anymore. All I could do was be honest with God. So when those dark seasons come, I just encourage you, maybe even before they come, make it a practice. Be honest with God. That's what the psalmist shows us. But he doesn't stay there. He moves on. And that's what he starts telling us in verse 12. He shows us how to move on with life. And the first thing is to remind yourself God's promises. He says, but you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is time to favor her. The appointed time has come. For your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. What has happened? There's a total shift. 
The very beginning of the psalm, he talks about his need and what's going on inside of him and how he feels and God in relation to that. But now he changes it. He moves on with his life. And what causes him to move on? Well, if you don't hear it, there are echoes all over these verses about God's promises to his people. God's promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Israel. And the psalmist is calling these to mind. This is why last week was last week before this week. Meditation happens before you get in the mess so that when you're without hope and you're lost, God will bring those verses to your mind, give you hope, and say, I remember. I remember God's faithfulness. I remember these promises. I may not see them right now, but I remember God has made promises to his people. And that's what he's doing here as he's talking about Zion, that you will arise and have pity on Zion. That God said, I have a people, a special people for myself. I will save them. I will redeem them. I will draw them to myself. I will see them to myself forevermore. They're mine. The psalmist's perspective has dramatically shifted. He's no longer looking inward. He's no longer thinking about himself. He's seen God. He's seen his throne. He's seen his majesty. And now that's led him to remember your promises, oh God. And this is the first way that the psalmist starts to move on. You see, this is in great contrast with a lot of counsel that you will receive outside of the Bible. If something bad happens to you, something traumatic happens to you, a lot of counsel that you, you will receive is you keep reliving that. Don't let it go. That's not what the psalmist does. He experiences it. He deals with his feelings, brings it before God. And then he says, but God, you're enthroned on high. And you have promises for your people. But the second thing he does is something that I think is really foreign to us. He begins to not just focus on God's promises, but he begins to view his little suffering in relation to everything else in God's plan. And I'm not saying it's little or it's little to him. I'm saying when you start to engage with your own suffering and start to consider all this, then you start to think, well, this is just me. This is just the way I feel. What about all the other billions of people throughout history? And the psalmist in verse 18 says, let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. Do you see what he's doing? He's, with his perspective change, he's no longer totally inward. He's now seeing God's glory and he thinks, Somehow, I don't know how, somehow my little story is having an impact on the generations to come. So what I'm going to do, back to journaling, is I'm going to write down in a song what's going on so that one day people in Linwood, Washington would read it and say, isn't God great? That is a clear 
key move for him that helps him move on with life. If he says, I'm going to, yes, focus on God's promises, and I'm going to see my little story in relation to a grander story. Talking about the Lord, that he looked down from his holy height from heaven. The Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise, when peoples gather together and kingdoms to worship the Lord. When kingdoms gather together. You know what language that is? That is in-game language. That is revelation language. That is a people of every tribe, tongue, language, and nation before the throne, singing and praising to the lamb that was slain. The psalmist is beginning now in his despair, in his difficulty, in his disappointment, beginning to see my difficulties somehow play a role in other people coming to know this one true God. And he doesn't even know how it all works out, but that's his clear intention. I'm going to write this down so that one day somebody can read this and they can hear my story and they can see how great God is. This is how he moves on with life. So not only does he move on with life, though, but he deals with waves of grief. Now, for you at this point, like me, as I'm kind of working through this psalm in preparation to preach, I'm like, well, great. Okay, so now it's all rainbows, right, after this. Everything's all good. You did the hard work of the internal stuff, focused on God, now even mission, like you're starting to think about other people in the midst of your difficulty. Now it's all going to be good. No, it is not. And I, I think that's very instructive for us because we'll see in the next section here what, what God is doing, but there is a natural movement for us when we engage with this kind of stuff where we say, okay, good, check, I'm done, great. It's coming back. It's coming back. But before it comes back, to focus a little bit on how this is affecting other people, I would say use your imagination. Having meningitis, getting better, one of the things uh, that I, I believe that God did, even though it was totally unintentioned by me, was really help my oldest son learn something of prayer. In that situation... I was not healthy enough to do anything, including work. So I said, I can't do anything. I don't have anything. So I'm just going to pray. So every day I would get down on my hands and knees in the morning and pray. Now, if you've ever tried to do that with a two-year-old running around, you know you got maybe like a minute. Um, So I would pray as long as I could. And then I'd say, you know what? Um, Daddy's going to pray. You can pray too. You can help Daddy pray. Why don't you get on my back and just lay on my back while I'm kneeling down and praying? And, you know, might have bought me another 10, 15 minutes. (laughs) But in doing that, one of the things that it did for me was I started to think about this generational business. I was like, I'm experiencing difficulty, but other people need to see how to deal with their own difficulty in relation to God. So maybe God will do more with that. 
more than I ever dreamed. Same thing with you. A part of you coming to God and dealing with this is affecting other people, other generations even. But he moves on still in verse 23 and teaches us how to deal with the waves of grief when they come back. Verse 23, he says, he has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. Oh my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout all generations. You see, you would expect after the last verse is that there's some kind of turn for the positive. And this was kind of bothering me as I was studying this and diagramming it. Um, but this is good. Why? This is how life really is. This is how life really is. When you start to deal with your own disappointment before the Lord, you start to hit a brighter spot. Maybe your hopes get up. And then guess what? It comes back. It comes back. The waves of grief. Most of the time, you don't know when they're coming. Maybe someone dies. Maybe you lose a job. Maybe you have a a broken relationship. And when these waves of grief come back to get you, don't be surprised. For the psalmist, you see him talking about this earlier, then talking about God's greatness and glory in the nations and his people, and then right back again. Oh, he's broken my strength. Do you see it? Do you see the rhythm of grief here? But in this rhythm, I think there is some positive aspect. Because if you noticed, this time around, he took two verses on himself. He took two verses. He said, oh, this situation. But then immediately, of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. He's getting better at it. He's getting better at dealing with lament. He's getting better at dealing with grief. And that's the first thing that he shows us here in order to deal with the waves of grief. He says, just be honest again. It's going to happen again. Be honest again. And then at verse 25, of all you lay the foundation, move on again. Let it come and then move on. I find this extremely instructive uh, for me because Oftentimes, when I experience grief, it happens that way. It's kind of unexpected, and it hits you. And if you keep doing this, I think like the psalmist, we'll get better at it. But the third thing that I think is really instructive for us is that he, in the bulk of his revelation, only had Zion. God's a faithful covenantal God. He's the one who keeps his promises. He will restore Zion, the city of God, where God's people are with him. He'll do it. That's what this psalmist had to rely on. But we have so much more. We have such a better word. The author of Hebrews quotes this psalm. In Hebrews 1, he begins by talking about the greatness of Jesus, the glory of Jesus. He says, long ago, in many times and in many ways, 
like this one. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in the last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. And then the author of Hebrews moves on, talking about how Jesus is better. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the great high priest. He's better than anything. He's better than everything. And then he quotes Psalm 102. In verse 8, he'll say, but of the Son, he says, and in verse 10, and you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up, like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. Whose years have no end? The author of Hebrews says, Jesus' years have no end. But the irony is that they certainly did have an end. With the psalmist here, he is, get this, the psalmist is honestly coming before God, honestly dealing with the way he's he's feeling and what's going on in his life. But he's using poetry, isn't he? He's using metaphor. He's using simile. He's using examples of what's happening to him. My bones, my, my flesh sticks to my bones. But on the cross, Jesus' flesh stuck to his bones. He's gaunt, dehydrated, bled out. On the cross, Jesus' strength is broken in the middle of his life, spent. Jesus on the cross is the person who cried out to God. You know what Jesus cried out on the cross? The equivalent of Lord. Eli, Eli. That's Aramaic. Adonai, Adonai. Yahweh, Yahweh. Hear my cry. And his cry was rejected. And he was crushed. His prayer was not answered. And God did not comfort him. Why? So that when you pray in your distress, you're heard. And it's not easy. I'm not saying it's easy to go through this stuff. But when you see Jesus on the cross suffering for your sin, taking on not just your sin, but your disappointment, your depression, now we're starting to see that God has a plan that's greater than anything we could imagine. We have somebody who can fully sympathize with with our weaknesses. The unique thing about Christianity is that God became a man and knows exactly what it's like to be a human being and has given us grace upon grace upon grace. And Jesus on the cross here is certainly rejected, cut off from the Father for the first time in his life. But in the resurrection, comes back from the dead and now lives forevermore, has years without measure because he will never die. He is imperishable. That means that your hope, believer, is imperishable. The author of Hebrews begins talking about Jesus to say that he is the heir of all things. You know what that means? 
He's the heir of you. You are a prize from the father to the son. Son, here are your people. Here's your bride. So Jesus not only knows our weakness, suffered and died and rose, but Jesus is fully committed to comforting you in your weakness and your depression and your disappointment. Church, hear this encouraging word today. Even if you go through difficulty and disappointment, Jesus is right there with you. It may feel like he's totally distant from you, like there's no answer, but the truth that the psalmist is talking about, author of Hebrews is talking about, the whole New Testament gives us, is that the heavens are split open and we have access to God the Father through prayer at any moment, in any place in history. This is good news. This is good news. So when we think about praying to our Heavenly Father, when we think about the help that we need in our difficulty, the heavens are wide open. God's ear is inclined to your need in the midst of your difficulty. And Jesus stands ready to receive you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the example of the psalmist here. Even though we don't know what was going on in his life, we do know. We do know that he found radical comfort in coming to you and your promises. And we thank you that this morning as we come, even if we feel cut off from you, even if we feel depressed or Uh, we have very real grief and difficulty in our lives that we are never cut off from you. And we may always come to you in a moment of need at any hour. Lord, I thank you that even today we have this opportunity and Lord, I ask that you would lead us to come near to you honestly, not fake, not any facade, no pretense, but honestly, as we need to. I thank you that you can handle it. Pray all in your son's name. Amen.